you and I, we live in a day and an age in which because of modern science and technology, we hesitate, we shy away from using the word impossible. Because those who use that word in generations past have been proven wrong in the modern day. You can imagine a family saying, I wish we could get across the ocean faster than by boat. There's got to be some better way. And the little child says, well, what if we could fly one day, daddy? Shush, little Johnny, that's impossible. And yet here we are not even having to exert any energy and flapping our wings like a bird, but sitting comfortably with hundreds of other people reading books and watching movies on our phones as we fly across the clouds to another country. The impossibility of communicating instantaneously with just someone who is half a mile away, let alone across the world. And yet today we do it with the press of a button, a flick of our wrists. Malfunctioning hearts, broken bones that were once considered a death sentence, now fixed every day, hundreds of times a day. The impossible is now possible. But there is one area, one realm of impossibility that even the most advanced levels of science and technology cannot fix, and that is human nature. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer is a resounding no, to which he then continues that it is equally impossible for the one who is accustomed to evil to do good. And yet here we are, Christians, those who were once accustomed to evil now doing good. Impossible to change the nature of man? Absolutely. But thankfully, we worship a God of the impossible. God does the impossible. We sometimes call this miraculous. And this morning, we look at what God, the God of the impossible, has done in our lives. And by doing so, by taking a deep dive into the reality of what God has done in your life, hopefully you will be strengthened in your resolve to serve Him out of a greater appreciation, not just for what He has done, but for the very fact that what He has done and continues to do is humanly impossible. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. This morning, Three impossibilities that Christ works in the believer's life. Three impossibilities that Christ works in the believer's life. And the first impossibility is that God uses the useless. God uses the useless. I'm going to read for you again verse 12. 
He says, this is Paul speaking of himself, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. As Paul reflects on his life and what the Lord has done with it, he cannot help but be thankful. Keep in mind that this was a man who for all intents and purposes was at the top of the Jewish hierarchy. He was a captain of the Jewish world. He had power, he had prestige, and now a slave of Christ. And as a result of that position, he is hated, he is persecuted, and has more than once almost lost his life at the hands of the Jewish world of which he was once a captain of. And he wouldn't have it any other way. In fact, he doesn't just grin and bear it. He doesn't just resign to his unfortunate lot in life. This is what God has for me. I guess I'll try my best. He doesn't sit around meditating on or longing for the past and better times. No, he says he's thankful. Stoned, beaten, fled, shipwrecked, thankful. He's not finding obscure ways to be thankful so that he has the will to keep going to ignore the hardships. No, he's thankful for the very one who put him in those hardships. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, he recognizes, is the source of the grace he enjoys and will extol in a moment. Christ is the one who called him on the road to Damascus and commissioned him to a life of service. And it is perhaps... That singular event that changed his life, and if we're honest, that changed the course of history that Paul is most likely thinking back on. And I say that because when you read his apostles, epistles rather, he usually says, I thank God. Here he thanks Jesus Christ. He has in mind what Christ has done for him. Now, despite all the difficulties he has faced for the cause of Christ and in the name of Christ Jesus, Paul is grateful, not just for the good times but for the service he's a part of, which has resulted in good times, but also bad times, and also terrifying times. And we see this in the next phrase, who has strengthened me? I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Now when he uses this word strengthened, he is primarily looking back into his initial call to ministry, which in Paul's unique situation was a a calling that was coincided with his calling to salvation. At the same time that he was saved, he was called to be an apostle. And in that strengthening, he was given particular spiritual gifts with which he was to use, and we now know did use, to fulfill his apostolic responsibilities. It's the same with us. And this is nothing new for God. Those whom God calls, he also strengthens for the task he has called them to. This is clearly seen throughout the New Testament, but the New Testament actually continues a pattern that we see God doing among the prophets and leaders of his people in the Old Testament. He calls them, doesn't leave them to figure it out or to go to some sort of theology class or go to the gym to work it out on their own, but he strengthens them for the task he has called them to. Now, although he is referring to the initial call of ministry, which again was simultaneous with his call to salvation, 
we know that God continued to give Paul strength throughout his ministry. In fact, if you turn ahead a few pages in your Bible, he uses this very same word in the Greek that we have translated strengthened in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. And the context as you turn there is that Paul is writing from prison. Prison, okay? Do not think modern American prisons. He did not have access to a library, to computers, to hot food. Okay, he is in a Roman prison, and he will refer to his first defense, which was an initial hearing before a Roman judge. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. There's a sermon right there. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth, which was a common saying in Paul's time referring to death. We see that he recognizes that God strengthened him for the task at hand because he said, Every, all my friends, my human friends deserted me, but God strengthened me so that I could not just survive in prison, but so that I could preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel. If you haven't given the end of 2 Timothy 4 a read, I recommend it. Because at the closing of 2 Timothy, we read of Paul going through a very, very dark time. He was lonely. He was deserted. Things were difficult. And yet he kept the faith and joyfully trusted the Lord. He uses the word again in Philippians 4.13, perhaps the most misused and misinterpreted verse in all of Scripture, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things has to be taken in context. The context here, he's talking about being content. He says, I can be content. And he specifically says, when I am hungry and when I have much when I am poor, when I am wealthy. I can do all things through him who strengthens me is talking about the situations that are difficult or not difficult and that he could be content. I was actually thinking about it this morning and I think perhaps in the church today, the misinterpretation and misuse of this verse may be one of the reasons that Christians today don't rely on God's strength because you have people in our world and in the media and in the sports world saying, I won this championship because of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which as he's, they're not talking about being content. They're talking about they just won a championship. And so we start thinking, well, I wanted to be in the NBA I didn't even make it onto my college team. So maybe this strengthening isn't for me. When we misinterpret Scripture, it has great ramifications in our thinking and in our lives. But the point is, he again uses this word to emphasize that in his demeanor, in his attitude, even in the midst of hardship and difficulty, Christ strengthened him to be content. Now Paul continues to explain why all of this happened. 
And at first glance, it can be a bit confusing. Let's take a look. He continues, he says, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He considered me faithful. That's why he called me. That's why he made me an apostle, because he, Jesus Christ, knew I was faithful. Now, we know that Paul was faithful in his Christianity as well as his work as an apostle. Not only do the scriptures attest to that, all the way from the record we have in Acts to the fruit evidence in the epistles, but we also know that God used the apostle Paul to pen much of the New Testament. Now, think about what that means. God used the apostle Paul to teach us, modern-day Christians, much of what we know about God and what he expects of us. He used Paul to do that. And as mentioned earlier, no amount of persecution or life-threatening circumstances aside from death itself could stop him from doing the work he was called to do. We know as an apostle, he was very faithful. As a follower of Christ, he was very faithful, but none of that applies to what he's saying here. Because everything that we know about him was post-conversion. He is talking about Christ considered him faithful, and that's why Christ saved him. So what is that talking about? Everything that we would say Paul was faithful in, we would put under a category entitled post-conversion. We would not say, for example, that he is faithful because of his fervent persecution of Christians as a devout Jew or the excessive burdens he put on God's people by teaching the man-made rabbinic law. Although he was technically faithful to those things, it was not a faithfulness to Christ that would warrant the Lord putting him into service for the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying here is the Lord's willingness to consider him for apostleship was because God understood him to be someone that would be faithful. A divine knowledge, a divine foreseeing. And here's the thing, and this is very important in Paul's life and your life. How is it that he could be faithful? How is it that you and I are faithful? It is by the power of God who works in us. So Christ is saying he saw, or Paul is saying Christ saw him, considered him faithful because Christ knew he was going to empower me to be faithful. He was going to do the work in me and through me. Yes, there is a part that we play. Philippians 2.12 makes that very clear. But that very verse, Philippians 2.12, that calls us to put in the effort and diligence to work out our salvation with fear and trembling goes on to say in the next verse that it is God who is at work in you. In other words, God does not call us and grant us the privilege of ministry because he anticipates What we will do, he calls us and grants us the privilege of ministry because he knows what he will do. Because let's face it, without him working through us, we are absolutely useless as far as the kingdom of God and God's glory are concerned. This is very humbling, but at the same time, very motivating. We are wretched sinners called by God, 
then used by God to work out His plan. And we understand that it is the depravity of man that makes him useless to God. So the impossible work of God that we must focus on is not merely his ability to make one who is useless into something or someone useful, but we must also focus on the means by which that person is made useful. In other words, if it is the depravity of an individual that makes him useless to God, then it is forgiveness that makes him useful. And that brings us to our second impossibility that Christ works in the believer's life. God forgives the unforgivable. God forgives the unforgivable. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Jesus did all this, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. God forgives the unforgivable, and there's no greater example of one who is unforgivable than a man by the name of Saul. We know him now as the Apostle Paul. He speaks here in verse 13 of his pre-conversion life. In fact, it was while he was on his way to more persecution and more violence that he was stopped in his tracks by the Lord himself. Let's look at what he was like before this life-changing event. There are three descriptions that Paul uses of himself. First, he says he was a blasphemer. A blasphemer is simply someone who speaks in a way that is hurtful and abusive. Someone who slanders others, who speaks negatively about others. This is distinct from gossip which is technically just spreading information about others, slander involves a defamation of character. In this context, and in most contexts where we find this word in the Scriptures, the blasphemy that Paul is referring to is, was directed at God. It is slandering God. Now, this is more than just taking his name in vain. This is speaking negatively about God or his character. So this could involve, for example, denying his majesty or speaking about him without the honor and respect that he deserves. A blasphemer is also someone who mocks the word of God, doesn't just accept some of it and not all of it. That is a mockery. A blasphemer is one who mocks his word in any part. The Jewish teaching from which Paul came from in that, blasphemers were condemned to hell. And as a Jew, as a Jew, Paul would never have been considered a blasphemer within Judaism because he was not slandering God the Father. However, blasphemy, true blasphemy, is slander against God the Father, Christ the Son, or the Holy Spirit which is why devotion as a good Jewish man in those days meant being a blasphemer because you are slandering Jesus Christ and denying His Lordship and His Messiahship. And you understand the incredible irony of this all in that He was simply, as a Jew, trying to fulfill the law when in reality 
by slandering the name of Jesus Christ, Paul was violating the first half of the Ten Commandments. This is because the Ten Commandments can be roughly divided into two general categories. The first four relate to honoring God. The latter six relate to honoring man, your fellow man. Now, in his zeal against Christ and his church, Paul did not stop at the first four commandments. He goes on in verse 13 to explain two aspects of his former life that were directed against other people, specifically Christians, thus violating the second half of the Decalogue. He says, back in 1 Timothy, that he was a persecutor and a violent aggressor. A persecutor, we know what that is. The word implies someone who pursues others like a hunter would pursue his prey. He attacks and hurts people, and he hurts people specifically because of their faith. And when we first meet Paul in the Bible, he is introduced as a persecutor of the church. Turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to spend a bit of time here. The book of Acts, the first time Saul or Paul is mentioned is in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, we have the record of one of the most faithful courageous, godly Christians who has ever lived by the name of Stephen. And he is preaching before the Sanhedrin. This is scary stuff. They were being heavily persecuted by the Jews, Christians were. And here he is standing before the Jewish high court. And at that time, they had religious, civil, and criminal jurisdiction. In fact, the Sanhedrin was presided over by the high priest. This is a big deal. Now, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, the previous chapter, was chosen as one of the seven who were charged with the task of serving the believers in what is considered a precursor to the modern office of deacon. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 says that Stephen was a man full of grace and power, who was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And because of his faithfulness in proclaiming Christ, he is arrested by the Jews and brought before this high court, the Sanhedrin. Now let's read the accusation of the Sanhedrin starting in Acts 6, verse 13. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Chapter 7. The high priest said, are these things so? Now, that question can be very terrifying because Stephen is very well aware of how the Jews and especially the high priest and his council view Christians. This is a life or death question. He does not try to plead not guilty. He does not defend himself. Verse 2, Acts 7, he says, and he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. And then for the majority of that chapter, proceeds to preach the gospel. 
By the way, his gospel presentation starts with the history of the very people he is preaching to, the Jews, which is a great evangelistic model. Bring your audience into the story of God. Now let's jump to verse 54. He has preached this sermon, and let's see how they respond to this preaching of the message of Jesus Christ, which includes the history of Israel and how they were to look forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. How do they respond? Acts 7, verses 54 through 58. Now when they heard this, this is the whole sermon, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that probably bothered them even more because they know he was talking about and seeing Jesus Christ. But, verse 57, But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. This is how mad. They are. They don't want to hear anymore. Grown men covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Paul. This is the first time we are introduced to the man that will one day become the apostle Paul. Now, what we just read about is a frenzied mob bloodthirsty. In their sin-stained anger, they impulsively drag him out and begin stoning him, which is brutal. It's nasty stuff. They basically stand as a crowd and start hurling rocks at him until he dies, until he bleeds out, till he's beaten to death with these rocks, or someone just nails him right in the right place and he dies instantly. But before then, you can be guaranteed that it was a lot of pain. Then the end of verse 58, again, we are introduced to Paul, then known as Saul, because the men laid their robes at his feet. This is not some strange coincidence where everyone, because they got to take their robes off to get the full range of motion to throw those rocks, just happened to pile them at this guy, and it happened to be Saul. No. No. This is Saul saying, you're going to kill him? Let me hold your stuff for you. Let's read on. Acts seven fifty nine and following. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, look at this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Echoing the words of his Lord. Having said this, he fell asleep. That means he died Chapter 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Did you catch the contrast? You have the Christians bearing their friend, 
crying over his grave while the very same incident drives Saul, fuels Saul in his thirst for blood to hurt even more Christians as a persecutor of the church. It is no surprise that Paul brings up his history as a persecutor in the midst of his gratitude to Jesus for salvation. This is a serious crime. This is a grotesque sin. When you think about the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done in your life, you most often think back to the grossest sin you committed prior to salvation. This is what Paul is doing. I mean, just imagine. Imagine witnessing the brutal torture and murder of one of the most, most Christ, faithful Christian men who has ever lived. You are just ecstatic, cheering in listening to his boldness. And now he is being killed for that same boldness in proclaiming the gospel. Personally, I think what would be etched in my memory more than the picture of the angry, screaming men with their wide, bloodshot eyes throwing rocks at my brother's head would be the picture of the calm, self-righteous, evil grin of the young man holding their stuff. And that was the future Apostle Paul. Aside from the obvious guilt over what he had done, there's another glaring reason that Paul would focus on the fact that he once persecuted the church, and it is this. When Jesus called him in Acts chapter 9, the first thing that Jesus says to Paul was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? No doubt that in the church, what the Christians were most concerned about when it came to this man was his well-earned reputation for persecuting them. But we also see that it was the key issue in Jesus' confrontation of him as well. And if Jesus were to audibly speak to you and mention one particular sin, I am confident that you too would remember that forever. And by the way, what we see in Christ's words to Saul is that the persecution of God's people is the same thing as a persecution of God himself. Finally, as far as persecution goes, I want to read to you how he describes himself after he is saved and well into his apostolic ministry in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. He said, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Look at this. This is a next level of evil, right? Denounce Christ. We've seen this throughout history since then. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities, even cities outside of my immediate Jewish jurisdiction. 
Sabbath. What we see is not merely some sort of religious sense of duty that involved persecuting Christians. He was mad. He was angry. And that anger turned to violence. And he says so himself when he calls himself, thirdly, a violent aggressor. Although extreme, we have seen from Acts that this is no exaggeration. A violent aggressor is a sadist, an insolent individual who is driven by violence and contempt for others, but also by the pleasure he gets in humiliating others and seeing others suffer. This kind of person sets himself above others in pride and arrogance. And this behavior is not conducted in ignorance. It is cold and calculated so as to strategically and deliberately inflict physical and emotional pain. Violence. When we look look at what Paul was like, any of these three would be unforgivable in our day and age. Surely you would consider them unforgivable if they were done to you. I know many who hold grudges and can't forgive for, for something someone did a long time ago that was a fraction of what Paul did to the church. So we understand the reaction that the Christians had when they were told, you need to accept Paul now, not just as a believer, but as one of your teachers and leaders. Acts 9 verse 26 says, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. This is understandable. Earlier in Acts 9, when the Lord tells Ananias to go get Paul, this is after that miraculous event where Jesus calls the apostle Paul and takes away his vision for some time. He then says Ananias to, to Ananias, who is one of his Christ's followers, you need to go get Paul. And this is what Ananias says. Acts 9, 13 and 14, he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Saul's reputation certainly preceded him. Now, you and I, we may never have been as bad as Paul was. In fact, next week, we will see him call himself the foremost of all sinners. But before we were saved, we were pretty bad. You would probably not call yourself a former blasphemer, but you were. You ignored the things of your maker. You scoffed and rejected those who told you the good news. You changed the channel when Christians were talked about in the news and said, oh, those again. You slandered God by slandering his people and those he called to shepherd his flock. Perhaps not as bad as Saul, but you were a blasphemer. And I doubt persecutor is a title that most of you would give yourselves, but you were. You've tracked down someone in your anger in order to hurt them, to yell at them, to finish the argument. You've chased after people who made you angry. You've gotten out of your chair to walk across the room to someone just so you could argue with them. You've picked up your phone. You've texted them. You've called them to prove them wrong or give them a piece of your mind. 
And your violence may have never reached the point that Paul's did, but you have used calculated words to bring the maximum amount of humiliation and emotional pain to others for the sake of your own feeling of accomplishment or vindication. You used to belittle and criticize people. You used to ignore your conscience that told you to speak a word of encouragement because you didn't want to seem weak or give the other person an edge. But like Paul, who was once Saul, you no longer do those things. By God's grace, that is no longer who you are or how you behave because Christ did the impossible. He forgave you the unforgivable. Look at how Paul ends verse 13. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The word yet, some of your translations say but, is very significant here because he is contrasting his sinful condition with the mercy of God. He is distinguishing between what he deserved and what he actually received. In other words, he is also describing all of us. What he received was to be shown mercy. Literally, I was mercied. By saying that he sinned ignorantly, Paul is not saying that anyone who is ignorant of the demands of God will be saved. What he is doing is explaining the difference between presumptuous sins and unwitting sins. And this is a distinction he draws from the Old Testament. It's made in Judaism. We see this in Leviticus 22.14 and Numbers 15, where for the ancient Jew, there was still a substitute and an, or an offering that needed to be made as a result of unintentional sin or failure, but the consequences were less than the conscious or intentional sin. Understand that when he says he was ignorant, Paul never says or claims that he was without guilt. We just saw him say the exact opposite. But he is explaining how he could be the recipient of God's mercy in the same way that Jesus on the cross asks the Father to forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And we saw Stephen just did the same thing. But when we take into account the immediate context of the false teachers, remember that? In 1 Timothy, then we see that Paul is also and mainly contrasting himself with those who know the truth but have chosen to twist it and reject it. To be clear, this does not put the false teachers beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, but it does put their sin in a different category than Paul's. To be even clearer, let me say that whether the unbeliever's sin is ignorant or deliberate, God can and does save all of the above. And that's exactly what he did with Paul, despite the depth of his sins, specifically against God's people. It's exactly what he did with us. We were mercied. No matter how your sins may stack up against other people in this room or even criminals who have been saved, even the Apostle Paul, we know that God has changed us. God has forgiven us. 
We are no longer those violent people. We are no longer the arguers, the screamers. We know this. God knows this. The world knows this. The other day, my wife was on the phone talking to a very important call. She was talking to a representative of someone who we need to clear with to get a very important medical device for my son. Now, I don't know, for those of you with kids, I don't know about you, but my kids are content ignoring us until we get on the phone. (laughs) Then they need everything possible. And this was a very important phone call. So at one point, my wife holds the phone, pulls it away from her, and gently tells the two boys that were bothering her, this is a very important phone call. If you interrupt me again, I'm going to have to spank you. She gets back on the phone. There's a pause. And the lady goes, I heard what you just said to your kids. Scary situation, right? Then she goes, to, says to my wife, are you a Christian? And my wife said, well, that depends on what you're going to say next. No, she said, <laughs> she said, yes, why do you ask? And she said, well, I'm a Christian too. And you just told your kids without yelling, with patience, you are gracious but firm And so I wondered if you were a Christian. Then she went on to say, because I am on the phone with so many mothers, you wouldn't believe the screaming and the yelling I hear. Because again, kids only come when you're on the phone. (laughs) Apparently happens on believers too. Of parents just screaming at their kids to leave them alone because they're on the phone. This is the mercy of God, that this is no longer who we are. God has changed you. God has changed me. God has changed my wife and this stranger on the phone. Impossible to forgive? Yes, but God does the impossible. He forgives the unforgivable. And we are reminded that no matter how deep or how frequent the sin, God forgives but also puts in the sinner a new heart and a new spirit. He changes us from sinner to saint. And that's how Paul ends in verse 14 with our third and final impossibility that Christ works in the believer's life God changes the unchangeable. We've seen that God uses the useless. God forgives the unforgivable. Now God changes the unchangeable. Verse 14, back in 1 Timothy 1. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. The testimony of Paul shows that the grace of God is never in short supply. There's not just enough, 
there is more than enough. Paul describes it as more than abundant, overflowing in the ESV, which simply means super abounding. It completely overflowed. It wasn't a nail-biter with just a little bit to spare after he was done with Saul. It runneth over. And because of that, Paul now lives the authentic Christian life, which is summarized by faith and love. Faith being the human response to the gospel that is empowered by grace and followed by an ongoing attitude of trust in God. Along with that grace, faith is a gift from God. And like faith, love is a visible effect of saving faith. This word being the agape love that is so cherished in the scriptures and the Christian life. The unconditional love that does not matter what you get in return. It does not matter even if the ones you are to love want your love. We've said this before. Agape love is not just unconditional. It is volitional. It is a choice. You may use the term fall out of love, but the reality is, is you have chosen not to love. You have chosen not to work at the love. It is not a Hollywood-based emotion. It is a choice. Faith and love, these two are often listed in the scriptures together as a pair, either as a standalone pair or in other lists of Christian qualities. And at this point, what we need to do here is go back to the word yet. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor, now faith and love. That's quite the contrast. Humanly impossible. Even in the most arduous of attempts to reform in our culture of fines and imprisonment, this kind of change is impossible. But not for the one with immeasurable mercy, and grace. God changes the unchangeable. Paul was in every molecule of his hateful, violent body unchangeable, and so were you. But God did it. God did it. Listen to this change in Paul's life shortly after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, Verses 19 through 22. And as I read this, keep in mind how he just described himself. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. In the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. Just days prior, he was killing people for saying that. They wouldn't dare say it in a synagogue. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving this Jesus is the Christ. I guarantee you, it was not just by his proclamation. 
It was by his life which dictated his proclamation. But here's the thing. This, what we just read, this amazing transformation, this is also who we are. Because of God's mercy, those who knew us before are confounded. They don't get it. Why don't you party anymore? Why aren't you critical anymore? Why don't you join in the gossip anymore? Why aren't you nasty anymore? Why don't you get angry anymore? Because of God's grace, we are increasing in strength. The very nature of this incredible, miraculous change means that we continue to grow more holy, more devoted, more faithful, more loving every single day. All because Christ has worked the impossible in your life. Once absolutely useless to Him, aside from glorifying Himself in your eternal punishment, now used for His glory. Unforgivable in your filth, now forgiven and white as snow. Unchangeable in depravity, but now changed in glory. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. My prayer is that as I read that for one last time, what we read earlier as a biography of Paul now resonates with you as an autobiography of yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing change you did in the Apostle Paul's life to show us the power and the reminder of what you have done in our lives. May we never lose sight of what you have done in our life simply because we didn't kill people or persecute the church. You saved us. You made us useful for your glory and your kingdom and your people. You forgave us. You changed us. May we live in that even when we stumble, even when we sin, when we do fall back into our old ways, even temporarily, may we be motivated by the reality, the objective change you have done in our lives. May we excel still more, continue to grow, continue to be faithful until you come and take us home and reward us with those great comforting words. Well done, good and faithful one. In Jesus' name, amen.